gorgeous sounds of Donnie Fraunhofer. Our thanks to Donnie for, for the tunes, as always, here on Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I am Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Jonah Bronstein of The Bronstein Concern and Matthew Fairburn, also of The Athletic. Uh, full show today. Uh, we have some Sabres talk with Chris Baker coming up a little bit later. We're also going to have Joel Staniszewski on the line from Vegas as usual. And what's becoming a regular guest for us here on uh, Tim Graham and Friends uh, is uh, Gerald Dixon, former Bill Scout, who has been generous with his time and seems to enjoy being one of the F's on Tim Graham and Friends. Um, nice to have him back. So uh, we'll get into Bill's Seahawks breakdown with... Uh, with Gerald. And of course, uh, you're going to get that with uh, Joel Staniszewski too, from a betting standpoint. Uh, guys, uh, we're starting to warm up a little bit with sports after a, a cool down post World Series, post NBA finals, post Stanley Cup. College football, at least in Western New York, is now back um, with the Mid American Conference play. UB gets off to a slow start, but an emphatic win in DeKalb, Illinois, over Northern Illinois uh, earlier this week. Um, I don't know. Before we get into that, anything else anybody else want to talk about here? Uh, I don't know. Do we want to talk politics? I don't know that we need to. I know it's got to be on everybody's mind, so maybe we'll just leave this a political-free zone. Yeah, I don't think... uh... We'll just give people a a diversion. We'll we'll claim, we'll say this is politics-free. With the exception of asking Joel Staniszewski what's happening in Nevada, because regardless of uh, your interest in the presidential race, whatever Nevada is up to out there with its counting, uh, we'll, we'll see if uh, we'll see if Joel has any insight on that. Counting um, is tough, Tim. And Chickawaga. It can be. <laughs> it can be one of my favorite uh, things about following coverage of uh, the presidential uh, ballots watching journalists do math on the spot on national television. Uh, I, and I'm sure they're peeing their uh, piddle in their pants a little bit. Uh, I know I would be, I'd say, all right, well, now we're going out to Maricopa County. Tim Graham has the latest. Uh, and I'll say, all right, guys, uh, he, uh, Biden has 21,403 more votes and Donald Trump has 19,412 more votes. And Tim, what's that? How does that? I was like, I just gave you the numbers, guys. You got people back there. Plug them in. <laughs> yeah, punch it. You guys got calculators and stuff. I'm ha- I'm looking to do a camera and holding the microphone. Um, That's why you need guys that are both accountants and journalists. Isn't that right, Tim? Yes, that's right. <laughs> I can, I'll be an expert at uh, subtracting from 20 minutes from my days of covering hockey. I can subtract anything from 20 minutes to tell you at what point a goal was scored or a penalty was taken. Um, beyond that, I have trouble. I can do an ERA. I can, I can multiply uh, by nine and divide by innings pitched. Um, but you can't calculate it. passer rating. No, that's uh, you need a calculator for that. I have a special program uh, website that I have to go to for passer rating. You know, one thing I find funny on election day every year, uh, sports reporters, especially television sports reporters, get very sanctimonious about this is like a sports night every night where we work late. We 
have things going on, changing at the last minute. We could do 365 election nights if we wanted to. I'm wondering now looking at that and going through the night, being three days, this kind of nonstop 72-hour coverage that we've gotten, all information coming in from all different parts of the country. How many sports reporters really think that they've been around this block before and can do this with their eyes closed like they like to tweet about every election afternoon? We are wired to file on deadline. That's about as those are our chops, I think, when it comes to this. Um, we have the ability to, I think, block things out, not panic, file when you got editors breathing down your neck at 1030 and you know people are waiting on you. Uh, but yeah, beyond that, uh, when every little fact could be wrong, uh, you don't have somebody handing you transcripts. Uh, all the stats are, aren't being just given to you. You don't have to do your own math. Uh, you don't have to find your own context. You don't have to f fish out really to, the, to uh, any significant degree whether or not Sean McDermott is lying to you uh, or whether you're being withheld, information's being withheld um, or who is, you know, filing a lawsuit you know, it's, yeah, somebody from a different game is all of a sudden going to come in and, and start affecting your game. Hey, Tim, I know you just covered Bill's Seahawks, uh, but uh, the Steelers just filed a lawsuit against, uh, against Josh Allen. Uh, that I think they, something about uh, the field goal shouldn't count. Uh, you know, okay, yeah, a little different. Well, somebody compared it to covering a game like a basketball game, but you're getting all the baskets reported to you out of order. So you don't know what the final score is and you're getting all these layups and dunks and misses and anything. You can really apply it to any sport. And then not until you have them all and you can piece them together, do you have any idea what the final score is? And that would be a very stressful game to try to write if all of the sports information came jumbled and then you had to assemble it on deadline. Great point. Well, there's also the, the fact that it really matters um right <laughs> that too. Like, that's what i find obnoxious about the whole thing of the whole oh why are these guys getting pizza sports writers do this every night i'm like yeah you, you also probably slept till 11 and like you're watching a ball game that doesn't matter and you know these people are uh covering something of significance now i will say sort of in the same vein there's probably a bit of an issue uh and i'm not an expert in this uh, it's not necessarily my I don't have experience covering elections, but I think there might be a problem in this country of the way elections become sports. Um, they become this thing, like you're saying, Jonah, right? We're getting the information. The votes are in, right? The votes are in. Like nobody's taking a lead or, um, you know, coming back in a state. The votes are all there. They're just being counted at different times. So like, the way it's covered as such a sport, I think, becomes uh, probably a little bit unhealthy uh, for the consumers of the information. Uh, certainly, like Jonah was saying um, before we hit record, uh, those of us who have been basically watching it for 72 straight hours, like uh, you can't turn away because of the way it's covered as this like like a sport, basically. It's covered like a sport so much that it's become many people's favorite sport. Ratings are down across the board for almost every sport. And the main reason that people suspect is because everybody's watching this political coverage more and more and more. And, and you can bet on this now, which we'll talk to Joel Staniszewski about too. If you get into a position where you can now bet on these races, 
uh, maybe we'll start to see uh, a push for more races. Uh, let's, let's break up all the different, let's do an NFL style where we're not just waiting until Sunday. Let's have some Tuesday, some Thursday. Uh, let's get some in the fall, some in the summer. Uh, we need some stuff to bet on here. Fantasy Congress draft. Yes. Well, and it makes it so people are kind of, they treat their respective side and their respective candidate like their, their favorite team. You know, you see more uh, signs and flags of political candidates than you do for the bills around here um, at times. You know, it's like, and people, there's a tribalism aspect to it of like, this is, this is your team. This is the opponent. And you're as passionate about it as you are if they were the New England Patriots playing your Buffalo Bills. You know, Matt, you mentioned how we consume these elections, and I don't think it would be the case for every election, obviously for presidential elections, though. Um, we're lucky being at The Athletic. They gave us the day off. Um, of course, if there had been breaking news on our beats, uh, we're expected to cover them. And, you know, we covered our teams, but we were given the day off to vote and all. But, and that's an aside, really. Um, but it's almost... I think we need to get to an expectation with as important as it is. And I've thought this for many years is that uh, there's always been a flippancy to, uh, to, uh, to uh, the presidential election night. And for instance, we have, um, you know, election night in America, I believe is what CNN calls its program. Well, it's still election night in America has not stopped. It's been, it was election night in America at 9.30 this morning on a, on a Friday. Uh, should it be election week in America? As important as this is, and with everybody talking about, you know, the fraudulence and we, how come we don't know and where are these votes, can we just at least get to a point where maybe not the way it was for most elect Some elections did take a long time, but if we can just set an expectation of a lot of votes were cast and it's going to take a while to get through this. So can we just, all right, you voted on Tuesday, you know, get back to us on Thursday and, and we'll start, we'll, you know, we'll update you as we go, but you know, don't, don't, you don't need your result three hours after the polls close because that's what your brain is used to. My team kicked off at one o'clock by four o'clock. I'm going to know who won and I'm on to my dinner and, and maybe relaxing for the, the four o'clock games. Well, yeah, there's a, I think, even in this run-up to this, there was even more expectation of that because of, you know, the mail-in voting and different things like that. Everybody said, we're going to need some patience, right? And I read all that stuff. I heard all that stuff from various media outlets. And then still there I was on Tuesday night. Like, it was the big game, you know? Like, so I don't think anybody really heeded that advice. And we're all sitting there on Tuesday. Like, at one point, I think it was like, I don't know, probably close to midnight when I went to bed. But it was like, I probably told myself four or five times before that, like, they're not going to figure this out tonight. Why am I sitting up here waiting? But um, I think we're all kind of uh, conditioned to think Tuesday night, that's the big night. It's the big game. It's like the Super they Bowl. Would, they would tease you, though, in good television. And it was also good news. They weren't doing it sensationalistically, I don't think. But they would say, we're expecting more ballots to come in in uh, Maricopa County within the next half hour. So it's like, well, shit, I can, I can stay up another half hour and just to see, and then it would be 400 votes and be like, I stayed up for that. But um, yeah, it's, uh, they, they would, there was the T, the, there was a play, there was a score. It was the red zone channel, right? It was uh, a team. You got the big board inside the, the 20. 
Yeah, Biden or Trump are inside the 20. Uh, one of them's about to score here. Let's let's take a look. Let's hang on and see what happens. Um, my hope, though, is that with so many people who voted in this election, that it exposed that many more people to, okay, this is this shouldn't be foreign to you anymore. If they're, you know, we talked about how pitiful um, uh, voting percentage was, uh, turnout has been in, in our country for decades, if not centuries. Um, and that I think people who don't vote aren't used to all these machinations and like how it's supposed to go. They just want the, uh, the sudden reward or the payoff. And now that everybody was emotionally invested in this, uh, regardless of what side you were on, I mean, the numbers are just through the roof. I think that's great for the country that we're not, maybe now then the expectations will shift for two years from now with, with Senate election, the midterms, and then another four years for anyways. So that's, I said, we weren't going to do political talk. We didn't pick a side, but we were just doing observations there about what this week has been like. It's been a lot. Jonah, how are you handling it? Well, I mean, I'm not sleeping much. It's staying up all night because you kind of think this is when they're going to dump that last pile of votes and tell us who won what states and whether it's over or not. And you don't want to be, you know, not staring at your television when they tell you who's going to be the next president. But other than that, I found it interesting, you know, it captivating to watch and learn how these things come together and all these different processes. And, you know, yeah, we're used to hearing on election night, sometimes early in election night, who won, but maybe for a little bit of perspective, you think the first hundred years or so of this country, people didn't know who won the election for days, even weeks after it happened because of the way word traveled and things like that. So the system is set up to elect a president and have a president inaugurated two and a half months later. And this time is used to count the votes, certify the votes and do everything that leads to the inauguration of our next president, whoever it is in January. Yeah, it's educational. And I think that, you know, we're all, you know, the three of us went to college and I'm sure we had, uh, you know, our social studies classes in high school covered this and whatever we did in college. I've learned a lot just watching this. I know what the electoral college is. I know that 270 is the magic number, but when you get immersed in it like this, I feel like a smarter American uh, through this process. So, I mean, that's just my, my high-handed you know, philosophical view of it, but uh, being plugged in and invested uh, in the future of the country is this is grown up, grown up stuff. It's the stuff I used to probably roll my eyes at my parents about is like, what's the big deal? My daughter who is 12 has been sitting out part of it's because of her, she has an assignment that she has to do in her social studies class, but she's not, she's actually into it. Like she's down there with me watching and she's, you know, she's got to mark off the States and which one means what, what a battleground state is just because it's undecided doesn't necessarily make it a battleground state. For instance, Alaska and having these discussions with her has been pretty fun. I don't think I would have been even remotely interested in having a discussion about that with my parents when I was 12, but it's bizarre to the, regardless of what side you're on, it, like you said, you're conditioned to be like, I'm sitting down in front of my TV for three hours and I'm going to find out if this football team won and there's that rush and the adrenaline and you're rooting for your team. Now I feel like whenever we find out who wins, it's just going to be like, oh, finally, like there's not going to be that like 
celebration necessarily because right. it's been dragged out so long. Or the, I guess this would be like, could you imagine like getting your buddies together? Uh, we'll get some beers and pizza. Uh, the Tour de France starts tonight. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then trying to keep up that level of, uh, of, you know, commitment and energy until it's over, you know, however many stages later. And it's like, all right, I, I, I got to go to work at some point. Uh, I got to sleep. I, uh, I've lost interest. Really. As I've gotten older, that's kind of how I feel about like some of these overtime hockey games that go to like, you know, four or five overtimes. So I'm like, well, at this point I value my sleep over finding out who, you know, won this game. And, the, the hockey becomes so exhausted by the end that you're just like, oh, whatever, like who cares at this point? And then at some point, uh, you know, um, I'm drawing a blank on, uh, on a hockey ref. Uh, Kaharski comes out and says, all right, guys, we're going to stop. We're going to resume this tomorrow. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> everybody get we'll out keep of here. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, we'll get back at it. We're done here for tonight. Carrie Frazier. Uh, comes out. Um, okay. That's enough uh, rambling on uh, about that. Um, I mentioned it earlier, UB football, uh, Mid-American Conference. Uh, Jonah, I know that you're, uh, you cover them closely. You watch them closely. A lot of people were watching because the game was on national TV. What were your first impressions of seeing Lance Leipold's unit and his team, for that matter, um, on Tuesday night? Well, or was it? Um, I'm sorry. Wednesday night. Wednesday night. You're talking about the game, not on the Zoom call later. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I thought the first game, the first that we've seen, the 2020 UB Bulls looked a lot like the last eight games of the 2019 UB Bulls. They went with Kyle Van Trees, a quarterback, who's the quarterback that finished the season, even though there was a training camp competition to see whether he would start. They won by 19 points, which matches the uh, point differential they had over that eight-game stretch at the end of the season where they lost two of those games, but then they won six games by huge amounts, and they really dominated their MAC opponents and their bowl game opponent, opponent, Charlotte. Now, Northern Illinois, which was the class of the MAC a few years back or two years ago, they beat UB in the championship game. They've gone through a coaching change, have a lot of freshmen. They're not the team that they were. In fact, in one of the polls, they're picked to finish last in the MAC West. So this is a game that UB should have won by a number of points. They made a few mistakes, really, in all the phases, offense, defense, special teams that contributed to Northern Illinois getting to 30 points when maybe if UB was a little bit sharper, it would have been an even bigger blowout. But then UB scores three defensive touchdowns, including two on almost consecutive plays, and that doesn't usually happen. So the offense only produced 28 of those points. I think overall it was a good game. UB was without three of their starters for undisclosed reasons, might have had something to do with the COVID positive tests that they had right before training camp opened. It probably did because I think if it didn't, maybe they would tell us why these players didn't play if it was just an ankle or a hamstring. But overall, they looked very good. Jared Patterson set the career rushing touchdown record in only the first game of his junior season. He had another 137 yards. It actually was the first time. The last six games last year, he went over 140 in every game. So 137 was a little bit below what he had been producing but it was still a big game he didn't play much of the he didn't he he came out right he had two two touchdowns on 110 yards in the first half and then they started running marks and doing some other things in the second half and so if you take last season and this season that's 14 games that's about a college football season if you have a good one and you play in the postseason he's over 
2,100 total yards, 1,950 rushing yards, 23 touchdowns. I mean, you have to look at, as I tweeted, O.J. Simpson in the 70s is the only Buffalo running back that over a 14-game stretch played like that. Thurman Thomas in his MVP years never did that. No UB back, even at Division Three or Division One, has produced a 14-game stretch like that. So, you know, we say this all the time when UB is good. you got to go out and watch him. What you about Jehu Colcrick at Climber High School? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's a good one. There probably are some high school, but not even. I mean, they don't play 14 games, so I don't know if you'd ever get quite those numbers. But, yeah, you do see high school athletes uh, that are able to rack up 300 yards per game. And that's, that's almost the production you're seeing from Jared Patterson is that he's dominating like you would see in a high school setting where teams are much better than the team they're playing against. Now, UB has a tougher game coming up, their home opener Tuesday against Miami, which is the defending MAC champions and the team that in some of these polls have picked UB to be the favorite in the MAC, and some of the other ones have picked Miami. So this is the big game for really seeing whether UB can win the division or the MAC title game. As I mentioned on the show last week, this perfect season is a possibility. I don't know if they'll get all the way there and win every single game, but they have the opportunity to be a team that if they get off to a strong start, can think about winning all the games on their schedule. But this is really the big game that will determine uh, whether UB has a good season or a great season, I think. The big game. Matt and I used to get together and cover the big game on a weekly basis. It's Buffalo-Miami reviving the rivalry. That's true. You know, that's the same, uh, the same tribe. A little bit of trivia. The, uh, the Miami Indians that settled down in that portion of Ohio are the same Miami Indians uh, down there at the, in Florida. That I didn't know. Now, you're from Ohio. Do you call it Miami of Ohio? Because there's some split whether that – Yeah. Actually, it's yeah, not correct, to. but a lot you of people to. do it. You have to. Because, yeah, you, even, in, even in Ohio, I'm guessing even in Dayton and Cincinnati, down there in that region, as opposed to Cleveland where I'm from. But you have to call it Miami of Ohio because Miami is just such a big city, um, I guess, in, unless you're in obvious context of talking about specifically mid-American – conference sports but well miami and the mac don't want you to do that in sports copy no, it's tough. Game notes. yeah tough we'll do it anyway it's like the ohio they want you to call it the ohio state university well guess what i'm not gonna it's ohio state imagine if it came in in the election results and like we had the results from miami and you think that's going to tell us who wins florida i guess they're both swing states but then i'll say oh, no, no no this is miami of ohio battleground states yeah, that's not right. miami dade Maybe we should just call it Miami-Dade from now on, and Miami of Ohio can just be Miami. The Hurricanes is what we called it when I worked at the Palm Beach Post because there's just so much Miami involved the U. in everything. Huh? The U. The U. They're right. The U, which is also stupid. I mean, I get it. It's yeah. AP style. I don't think so. But. Miami Gardens. Uh, okay. Let's, uh, let's hear from some others. People are sick of hearing from us. Let's hear from people like Chris Baker. You follow him at Sabres Prospects. Let's listen to Gerald Dixon, former Bill Scout. Let's listen to Joel Staniszewski. But before we do that, I need to remind you. I need to remind you too. You two guys and anybody else listening. Use Wait, let me get a pen. Let me get a pen. Get this down. I want you to jot this down. That Tim Graham and Friends is brought to you by Shampoo Travis Besaw and Kirshner, CPAs, business consultants. 
CTBK is a leading accounting firm with a growing team of accountants and business consultants with roots in Amherst. CTBK pairs every project with a focus on a human connection between its team and the client for assurance, accounting, taxes, litigation support, and advice on mergers and acquisitions. CTBK is available and ready to solve any issue your business faces. For a consultation or to request a quote, call 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. CTBK, over a quarter century of proven accounting and business excellence for Western New York and beyond. All right, who do you want, who you guys want to hear from first? Chris Baker. Right, Danny Baker. You want to hear from Gerald Dixon first? Do you want to hear from Chris Baker first, or do you want to hear from Joel Staniszewski? Chris Baker. All right. Baker. Here he is, Chris Baker. Long-awaited return to the program is at Sabres Prospects. That's where you would follow him on Twitter, and that's what he does. He tracks the Sabres Prospects. He really tracks NHL prospects and does it like nobody else. It is Chris Baker joining Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK. Daddy Bakes, good to see you again, man. Great to see all of your faces here on our uh, Brady Bunch grid and I think we've all gotten used to the Brady Bunch grid at this point over the last few months but I feel like the band is back together man so it's good to be with you guys in spirit in spirit um yeah it's uh, it's not our usual preferred gathering but uh, it'll do for now and uh, the show has been devoid of hockey talk and it's because there hasn't been too much and yes there was a draft but and the Taylor Hall signing was big for the Buffalo Sabres, but with no games to be played for a couple of months, everybody's just so into the Bills and even UB football, I think, more. But I think it's time. The leaves are falling off the trees. Um, the NBA and Major League Baseball are finally done with their seasons. Now we're kind of getting in that mood again. I think our Western New York internal clocks are starting to crave hockey. Uh, so I wanted to have you on, Chris, and um, – and there has been a lot going on, though. I mean, little things here and there over the months. Um, but what would you just say if I were to ask you, what do you think the state of the Buffalo Sabres is right now? can only go up from where they've been. So, you know, with that said, um, you know, to your point, this is normally when hockey is kind of in full swing. You know, we always say, oh, well, you got to look at the standings on American Thanksgiving, and that tells you it's an indicator, right, if the team's going to make the playoffs or not. Well, what, what's our new one this year? You know, Valentine's Day? I, I don't know. But um, the Sabres themselves, I mean, they're still making moves. I think that they have an idea. You know, they're really trying to construct a roster from top to bottom all the way in Rochester as well that, um, you know, gets guys that can compete. They got to get experienced guys in here. They made a move for a depth goaltender this week that maybe we can get into for a little bit. But I mean, um, you know, I like the moves. I like the draft. You can kind of get an idea of the type of player that they're looking for. They're definitely looking to fill roles. It's not straight up, just let's get the best talent, offensive talent across the board. You look at, you know, some of the depth signings that they've made. It's clear that they have a vision for slotting guys into certain roles, and I think that's a healthy way to look at building a roster. And I think the draft also, we talked about it, you know, did they draft the best player available to draft? We won't know that for a couple of years, but I think going into the draft, I think they had a profile of a player that they needed to get 
And they um, they definitely hit that. I think they needed a scoring winger, and that's what they got with Jack Quinn. So that was kind of the first domino as they entered free agency. They made some key moves here. And, you know, I get hammered on, I think, a lot on social media for maybe being a little too positive at times. I have the ability to be negative, but right now I don't see a reason to be negative. I'm giving Kevin Adams and his team kind of a blank canvas, a, a clean slate. And so far, I think they're doing a pretty decent job, given the resources and some of the cost concerns that exist in the organization. How hesitant, though, are you to give Kevin Adams a clean slate? I know you said you are, but did you have to grapple with that at all, given the track record of the the burn rate that the Pagulas have gone through with their GMs, not only in terms of um, how it's happened and that they fall out of favor, but they fall out of favor quickly. So does Kevin Adams, does he have a blank canvas with the Pagulas, do we think? Well, he certainly has a really good relationship with them and there's trust there where I think that he's off to a, a more of a head start than Jason Botterill was or, you know, Tim Murray was for that matter, where he's been in the organization, different roles on the business side of things. I think that there's trust built up and that lends to just a, a more seamless work relationship. You can get things done quicker. Um, from my perspective, to answer your question directly, I mean, maybe my stance would be different. Maybe he didn't, he wouldn't have a clean slate if I didn't know Kevin Adams, or at least, you know, we're not great pals, but we've, you know, we come from the same hockey pedigree with Chris Hicks and the, you know, the old Niagara scenic days. And um, I've had a lot of knowledge about Kevin Adams as a person and the type of human being that he is, which I have no reason to think that he won't succeed in the job. So that's kind of my perspective. And again, maybe that's me being too positive and that's a fair criticism of me, but that's where I'm at when looking at Kevin Adams and the start that he's given. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not the skeptic, you know, and I, and I look at the players that he's brought in and I can see why they brought in the players that they did. Tim, you and I talked about maybe six or eight months ago, just about, you know, maybe a Sabres, you know, projecting what they might do. This was before Kevin Adams was a GM. We talked about maybe Taylor Hall being a guy that they go out and look for. And they did. And they got the big fish. Now, was that Kevin Adams? No, that's Ralph Kruger being a closer. But um, I have no reason to believe that the Kevin Adams and Ralph Kruger conglomerate can do good things here moving forward. What do you make of the the public perception of Kevin Adams and, you know, when he was hired and just some of the things that people said because of um, the way everything went down and then all the cost cutting? What do you make of the public perception? And then how do you think um, or what do you think he's done, I guess, to push back against that um, with some of these moves? Sabres fans have every right and reason to be skeptical of everything. OK, so when it comes to the perception of Kevin Adams, I totally get why they're just like, show me, you know, it's that whole show me, don't blow me thing. Right. And they're, um, they're, they're wanting to be shown right now. I think they're eager to get this going. They want to see the team on the ice. Everything's on paper. So the, the public perception, I totally get it where they've, they've been, you know, their chains have been yanked for many years here, really since the Bagulas bought the team and Terry fired his shot of, you know, the whole reason for existence of his team is to win the Stanley cup. And I think he put a, a three year, um, you know, not a guarantee, but I mean, you know, the Pagulas did this to themselves too, with a lot of their bravado and, you know, the way that they went about their tank very brazenly. And you can argue whether that tank paid off or not. I still don't think that it has. I don't care if you got the player, you haven't won jack squat. So I get the fans perception of this is just another move and everything else. 
again, my stance on Kevin and, and Ralph, again, I think Ralph really is running the show. If we're going to be honest here. Um, but it's, you know, I, I have history with Kevin where I have no reason to believe that he's not going to build a really quality club moving forward. What do you think about the immediate expectations for this coming season? If this is year two of the Ralph Kruger program, what do the Sabres need to do? What do you need to see from the Sabres to think that's going in the right direction? Got to balance the lineup and don't be afraid to try different things and don't rush your young players up. Okay. So um, there's no pressure to have Jack Quinn in the lineup right now because they went out and did a pretty decent job filling out the roster and free agency. I think give your young players a chance to breathe a little bit, let their development happen organically. Casey Middlestad, same thing. Okay. He's going to be 22 years old in a couple of weeks here, but you know, Casey Middlestad just needs to worry about Casey Middlestad. He doesn't need to worry about Dylan Cousins. You know, comparison is the thief of joy, right? Casey Middlestad needs to see the long haul for his career and just get better and work his way up towards making the Sabres. I don't think he's going to be on the roster this year, at least to start. Um, getting Taylor Hall, you know, don't be afraid to try different things. I think Jack Eichel and Taylor Hall are going to be locked in together. Find them a winger. Try different wingers. Is it Olsen? Is it Sam Reinhardt? Don't be afraid to try Sam Reinhardt at center if Eric Stahl is not your bona fide number two guy to anchor that line. So I think that my expectations are that I said at the top, it can only go up. I'm sick and tired of watching, you know, the hockey that I've had to watch when I sit down to watch an NHL game. I spend a lot of times up here in this office watching junior hockey and European hockey, when I go and watch the Sabres play, I want to watch a quality product, not as a fan, just as a, you know, of the Sabres, but as a consumer of hockey. I haven't had that luxury. So I think it's going to take them to try different things. Um, and again, I think that they did a good job bringing experienced players in here to allow their younger players, like a middle stat, like a Will Borgen, who's a right shot defenseman who can play in the NHL probably. Build a good culture down in Rochester, too. Get them winning. Get a win at every level of the organization. So that's really my expectation, Jonah, if I'm answering your question in a satisfactory way to you, is that I want to see a team that competes, and I want to see a team that's not afraid to try different things if it, if it leads to wins. What do you think the Taylor Hall signing does for the organization? Because there are so many different ways to look at it, especially in the context of a one-year contract. Um, there is some skepticism that you could look at. Maybe they're just buying themselves a draft pick at the trade deadline or what have you, or some assets. Uh, maybe it's a PR move. Uh, but there are some actual success metrics that you can plug onto the team right now when you have a player like Taylor Hall, and depending on what line you put him on. I guess what's your quick and dirty overview of the – the palatability of this, of this signing was it and, and whether what, why, why it was done. It's a whole shot in the arm for the organization and really the city. If you think about it, um, we've always heard about the Sabres maybe having a disadvantage when it comes to recruiting players. Well, here was the marquee free agent and he chose to come to Buffalo largely because of his relationship with Ralph Kruger. So I think that, you know, the key to, to Hall is keeping him healthy. I think you want to weave him right into the leadership group on that team right away. If Jack Eichel's your captain, I would not be surprised at all if they give an, an, an A to Taylor Hall and they show him um, that he's trusted. He's part of the success of this team, both on and off the ice. Unless I he's a bonehead, that should be automatic. It should be unless automatic. Unless he comes in and does something, I mean, and he's not. I, I mean, there's no unless he comes in and does something totally out of left field, then he absolutely has the A coming into the season. Totally. I, I, 100%. I yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, from a – 
counting stats perspective, you want to see 35 goals, 90 points, somewhere around there as a, a modest, modest benchmark benchmarks for him to hit. Um, but I think it boosts the entire roster. You know, your, your power play gets better. Um, Victor Olofsson, who's still a young player, doesn't have to shoulder the load of being this guy that is, you know, accounting for X percent of your goals. He can just kind of do his thing and maybe get better matchups. Remember when the Sabres were really good in those middle, early 2000s and Thomas Vanek didn't have to play on the top line. He scored 41 goals one year, largely because of the matchups he was getting. Maybe, right. maybe an Olsen has the same type of success rate now that maybe he can play down the lineup if they're trying different things and you maybe put him with Stahl and Skinner. I look at it, let's pod these players, man. Okay, Eichel and Hall together, Skinner and Stahl together, mix and match Reinhardt, maybe Tage Thompson, who's got a great shot also, and you know, coming off the injury last year, maybe he can play a bigger role up the lineup. That's why I keep saying try different things. It doesn't have to be all Olsen and Reinhardt. And if maybe Reinhardt is a center, like I said. Um, but I, you know, to go back to Hall, I don't see it as a one-year deal. I think they're really going to try to show him that this can work he and Jack can maybe make magic on ice and he can sign another contract. And then you have to worry about the trickle down effect from there. What do you do with Reinhardt after that? You know, how do you handle the expansion draft? What kind of trades do you do to maneuver for the expansion draft? So there's a lot of story to still be written here, but, it, but it, it's all moot by the way, if Taylor Hall doesn't stay healthy. One of the strange things about Taylor Hall and Buffalo being a locale that you can draw him to is that he doesn't, <laughs> If you, other than the island, other than uh, Long Island, uh, he's played on all the markets that you would put below Buffalo in terms of its appeal. <laughs> you, yeah. Edmonton, Newark, <laughs> or wherever. Uh, yeah, he's, he's probably going to come to Western New York and think, well, this is, he, he's been here before, obviously, as a visitor, but he's going to spend some time here and think, hey, this is, uh, this is a utopia, hockey heaven, maybe. <laughs> yeah, hockey heaven where careers go to die, right? <laughs> Maybe not anymore. But um, it's kind of the same thing that we said about when Skinner waved his no trade to come to Buffalo. You know, close to home, the Ontario guys, you know. You see a lot of, um, you know, if Ontario guys, like we always say, it's like, look at Joe Thornton. He, he, all he's doing by playing for the Maple Leafs this year is checking something off the bucket list for a hockey player, you know what I mean? And maybe coming to Buffalo is the next best thing for some of these guys that are Ontario boys. You know, but yeah, Buffalo, I mean, you can't compare the, the Buffalo market. The one thing I will say to take, I, I will take exception to one thing you say about Long Island. Yeah, the market has been kind of goofy and they had, you know, the, the SUV in the corner when they were playing in the rink and all this goofy stuff. Look at what that team has done, though. They lost John Tavares, their cornerstone, for well, nothing. I'm so, yeah, I'm talking. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but it's like I love what they're doing there. Yeah, but I love what they're doing there. I hear you, though. I know why you, why you mentioned that. I do. Hey, Chris, when you talk about balancing the lineup and generating more scoring chances that aren't coming from Jack Eichel when Jack Eichel's on the ice, my question is why, why are Hall and Eichel wedded together and your projections and really everybody looking at the Sabres roster when it seems like a player like Taylor Hall might be the perfect guy to try to create scoring when Jack Eichel's not out there, take pressure off Eichel and get more opportunities, even within a power play to score that isn't so reliant on one player because it, we've shown that or Skinner's shown, Olafson's shown these guys can score with Jack Eichel on the wing. Eichel doesn't really need Taylor Hall to finish for him. You know, why are they, why is it assumed that they're going to play together all the time? So there's two ways to look at it. And I love that question because, um, you know, I look at the Bruins, they just load up their top line, Bergeron, Pasternak, 
Marshawn, and they just kind of go. And they're the pace setter for the team. They log the most minutes of the number one power play, and that's one philosophy. But then you can look at what Pittsburgh's done with Sidney Crosby, and they've put guys like, you know, Connor Sherry playing with them and Brian Rust and Dominic Simone, who they didn't even sign. And, you know, they, they put – they let the strength of the centermen carry two maybe average wingers, and that allows them to put more balance together. The, the thing that leads me to believe that Hall and Eichel are going to be locked together was Ralph's comments when he recruited Taylor Hall, and he talked about their competitive nature of pushing each other, and it really seems like he's going to try to have them play together and maybe deploy that Bruins philosophy and maybe less of a Penguins philosophy when it comes to using those two players. How do you think it'll work? They're both kind of puck possession guys. Um, how do you think they'll mesh on, on the ice just from a, a you know play style standpoint? You know, it's a good question. And it's one of those things that we need to see come out. I don't know if Taylor Hall has really played with a, a center, the caliber of Jack Eichel, where, you know, maybe Taylor Hall's possession numbers have been as good as they have been because he's had to have the puck on a stick to kind of carry the line that way. I think it's one of those things where you, you need to see it happen to really understand if it's going to be successful or not. And that's kind of where I land with it. Um, what I can tell you is that, you know, Taylor Hall is, um, I think when he has a little, when he's not the, the focus of attention for defenders, I think he's going to thrive. So if folks are really drawn to Eichel and maybe he gets a double in some ways, and guys are just closing in on Jack, that's going to leave someone open, and it could be Taylor Hall in a lot of instances, and that's going to allow him to use his, his gifts to score and you know his shooting skills and everything else. <laughs> uh, before we get into more of the prospect angle of it, just to kind of wrap up the – I mean, we can – talking about the defense on this team, I don't know. I know it's a big issue. It's a little boring to me because it seems like we're talking about the same things over and over and over again when it comes to the defense. But goaltending, um, how would you just give your assessment? That's I know that's your uh, your wheelhouse, and uh, I always love getting your opinions on the organizational depth um, when it comes to goal, and that still seems to be an unaddressed uh, position so far this offseason. It is. If they have a weakness, I think it's still goaltending. When um, that second day of free agency started – it, it was clear to me anyways, if I was in that room with them, it's like, Hey guys, this is go time to go out and get Corey Crawford for two years. So when you look at free agency, Braden Holpe was out there. He signed a two year deal with Vancouver. I think it was in the neighborhood of 4 million. And to me, that was the benchmark for what a guy like Corey Crawford was going to want. Corey Crawford had a great year last year in Chicago, and he would have been a great fit here that allowed you maybe some flexibility to do something with Hutton. If you didn't believe in him. And I'm, I'm not sure that Hutton's going to rebound and maybe, you know, earn the dollars that he's getting. So I have concerns there. Um, obviously, you know why they didn't pursue a guy like Corey Crawford, because they were waiting to keep those dollars in line because they were in, in the mix for Hall, and they ended up getting the big fish there. So that's, you know, you can see it happen now working backwards, um, why they didn't pursue Corey Crawford. I thought that was a miss, though, you know, not getting him. So when you look at the organization top to bottom, um, you know, to kind of go, to go to what happened this week with them signing Dustin Tokarski to a two-year contract. So you have a 31-year-old guy. He's got somewhere, I, just, I think, just north of 30 NHL games on his resume. And I think that's important. When you, you need your organizational three or four that generally you're going to stash in Rochester to have NHL game experience. They didn't really have that right now. If you're looking at, you know, before Tokarski came into the picture, you have Uka Pekka Lukanen 
who's they really want to grab the reins and be the guy in Rochester for the next two years. And Jonas Johansson, who was an AHL All-Star last year, I suspect that they would have never gone out to get Tukarski if they could get a two-year contract with Johansson because that's the guy then that they could have exposed in the expansion draft. The Tukarski move was all about getting veteran depth in there. He can help with Lukanen's development, but he's also the guy that we can expose to Seattle. Um, Sabres are in trouble, though, man, after this year with goaltending. I don't think there's any question about that. No one should expect Lukanen to be ready to come up to the NHL after this season. Allmark has to have a good year. You got him on a one-year contract right now. Hutton's got one year left, and I think the writing's on the wall for him. So what's the plan? We need to find out. But I think they're in trouble after this year as far as if you're already looking forward to 2021-22. I don't know what the plan is yet. Well, you got to build a bridge to Jackson Baker, and there's a lot yeah. of pieces in between there, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of pieces in between there if you're looking at 17-year-old Jackson Baker coming up and playing. But, um, no, you know, I think that, you know, the Sabres were looking at um, getting a goalie. You know, entering uh, day two of the draft, I strongly believe that, that they had pick number 100 early in the fourth round, and they were going to take a goaltender there. Um, there were a couple that they were looking at. They had to use 100 to get up and take the German forward, Paterka, and that kind of killed that. They had some other prospects they were looking at, maybe that they would burn a fifth rounder on, and they went right before the Sabres were up. So they didn't get a chance to take another goalie to get him in the system. But again, these aren't these are guys that are going to be five years off from helping at the NHL level anyways. Um, Eric Portillo is going to be at University of Michigan if they end up playing hockey this year. I mean, I know they're going to, you know, they're scheduled to play, but, you know, even a guy like that's probably three or four years out. So big, big problems, I think in net for the Sabres moving forward. They're doing well addressing the skaters and they have some sorting out to do with their defensemen. I still think that goaltending is the most important position in hockey. A lot of people want to tell me I'm crazy for saying that. Um, and they're really, I don't know what the, I don't know what they're going to do right now. How are you Chris Baker at Sabres prospects on Twitter and NHL scouts out there going to evaluate uh, young players this uh, this winter, we we know that the Ontario Hockey League has said no body checking. Uh, you have some additional information that I wasn't aware of uh, regarding some other uh, junior leagues out there and their rules moving forward. I guess what's how would you describe this landscape that uh, if the, if there is hockey, that's that's still if all this can happen and everybody passed their yeah. tests and things don't crash and who knows what else. But what what are we looking at here? You really got to front load your scouting while they're playing. You know, I think Europe, you know, Europe already has stopped playing in certain countries. The Czech Republic shut down for a couple of weeks. Um, Sweden and Finland are having surges where certain organizations are shutting down. Um, so, you know, if, if you have the ability to get out and see live viewings, you got to get them in when you can. That's now or, the, you know, the, the past couple of weeks. But, um, you know, for a Sabres organization, it really shrunk their scouting staff and they were already going to plan to move to video anyways. Um, this couldn't set up any better for them. Um, you know, video scouting has its pros and cons. Okay. So you can watch a greater volume of games in a day. And I can attest to that. I watch four or five games sometimes a day, which is nuts. And I'm fried from it. My brain sucks because of it. But, you know, you also, the, the con to that is that you only see what's on the frame. And when you're scouting, you got to see the whole picture. So there's disadvantages to rely on just video in an ideal world. There's a reason that 
hockey is considered a terrible television sport. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of it. You can only see what's right in front of the camera. Yeah. And that's, and that's a challenge because you do want to see, you know, you, you have to see the whole picture. So there, there's issues with that. You know, ideally you would use video scouting to deploy your eyes, your live eyes. You know, if you're looking at 10 players on video, pull out the three that you want to go watch live. You might not have that opportunity this year. Now to your comment earlier about what the OHL is doing, you know, they're going to a no body contact um, style of the sport this year. And that's also filtering down to other leagues, the OJHL, which is their junior A league in Ontario. They're going, you know, they put out their five on five regulations um, before we hopped on about an hour before we, we did this today where um, no body contact players have to wear masks. You have to wear the bubble face mask. Um, you know, there's going to be strict guidelines for who they're going to let into the arena. Now that's only in Ontario. Um, but I, I suspect similar mechanisms are going to be in place for the Alberta junior a league, the British Columbia junior a league. We don't even know when the WHL is going to start. The OHL seems to want to start in months from now. We're in November. I mean, we're still about three months out before the OHL is even thinking about playing. So everything's upside down right now. Um, if you're the Sabres and you're looking at the pool of draft players, I mean, draft eligible players, the USHL is still playing. Their games are set to start this weekend. The NAHL, which is, you know, really you're only taking goalies out of there. Okay. Um, you know, they're playing. There's games that have been happening. Um, but I expect everything to be shut down, man. I mean, I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy here, but the, you can already see it. USHL games are going to be canceled in pockets. And, and, and at some point you're going to have a pause across the board just like what's been going on in Europe, you know, Czech Republic, they were playing games for about a good solid three weeks to a month. And then their health minister just said, you know, we got to shut everything down. Um, they, they tried to shut down for just two weeks over there. It was about three and a half, four weeks. Now they're going to start to try to play games again this weekend. We'll see where it goes. Um, it's just a weird year, man. I think video is going to rule the day when it comes to scouting and it's going to come with some flaws. Chris, what do you think or what have you heard about, local hockey, junior clubs, recreation, high schools, youth, uh, you know, what, what is your insight on whether they'll be able to play, when they'll be able to play, how the game will be played locally this coming months? I think your guess is probably as good as mine, Jonah, honestly. Um, you know, I, I'm plugged into, you know, the 16U and 18U ranks just by virtue of having a niece and nephew that play at a very high level at those age groups. And um, like in Chicago right now, they've been going – to Detroit and trying to go to Pittsburgh to play games. But, you know, every plan gets shut down. Usually I think my nephew plays in Chicago. He's only played four games so far. Usually they've had 20 to 25 games in, um, here in, in, in Buffalo. I don't know what the plan is going to be. I mean, we know the junior Sabres, the junior A team that uh, playing in that OJHL that we just talked about with those rules and regulations, they just opted out for the year. And then the junior Sabres, 16U, and, and all the age groups below, they went on pause because of a COVID outbreak. So scheduling's tough because a lot of these higher, um, you know, higher level, they play out of state a lot. And not every state's different right now. Illinois is different from Michigan. You know, when you, the junior Sabres, they play a lot of games against like Little Caesars and Honey Baked in Detroit. And, you know, even going towards, you know, North Jersey, there's a couple of the Avalanche and the Rockets and things like that. There's good teams out there that they want to play. Everything's up in the air right now, Jonah. I just don't know how it's going to shake out. 
it's such a weird year <clears throat> coming into this year. Like when we were talking about this in summer, we were saying, be lucky if you have a regular season that starts in January, or February, and maybe that's how it still ends up. Yeah. I think that uh, when you're talking about crossing state lines and all those restrictions that you have quarantining, especially teams coming into New York and all the tournaments that happen, whether it's at the Northtown center or, you know, downtown, whatever, you might have a situation where if there, if you are allowed to play here in New York, that you're just playing the same teams over and over again. I mean, you might get, that's right. sick of it, but, uh, but that's obviously high school. Uh, they'll, they might be able to have their games, but you're talking about the youth and how much, how dependent they are on teams coming in from Pittsburgh and Cleveland and wherever else, just to put these tournaments together. Uh, those, those probably get dashed uh, pretty quickly. Um, anything else, Chris, to, that uh, you want to add that I didn't ask you about? No, I think that, you know, just to kind of go back to what we talked about at the top of the conversation, I mean, you know, the, the prospects are still playing right now. There's games in Sweden. Like when we end this call and I still have work to do, but on that TV will be a game in Sweden. I'll still be putting out video highlights for the guys that are playing. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of things to like about some of these young players. I think that really more than ever, though, it's going to be about patience, especially with this year. This year, you know, a lot of these guys that I'm reporting on right now, the Sabres are going to try to get over here to play in Rochester. Oscari Loxon, who plays for the Pelicans in the Finnish leagues, having a great start to his year. Artur Rutzelainen, who, you know, as of uh, over the weekend, was a top scorer in the Finnish league. Young, crafty forward who could really challenge for a roster spot on the Sabres this year. So even though we don't have a lot of hockey going on right now at the NHL or AHL level here in the States, there's a lot going on still in Europe as long as they're playing and have the ability to play and and we'll be keeping an eye on them all. And I just wanted to make sure I got that plug in to watch the Twitter feed for video highlights and everything else. At Sabres Prospects, uh, we'll be plugging the, the whole thing. We'll do it through the show. We'll remind everybody. It's, uh, it's compelling, compelling content because you can't get it anywhere else unless you know exactly who it is that's in the Sabres organization and you have Google Alerts set up or whatever, or you can just have Chris Baker do it for you. And he'll give you all the updates on where these guys are playing, what team they're with this year, whether they, who they got loaned out to, whether they've been traded, transcribing tweets or whatever the hell you'd need to do, uh, or not tran translating, I should say. Somehow. And I'll do my best to reply to those questions after the election dust is settled. I'm trying to not pay as much attention to, to Twitter right now, but I go on there, I tweet, and I get the hell out of there, man. That's kind of the plan right now. <laughs> Smart to do. <laughs> philosophy. Chris Baker, again, follow him at Sabres Prospects on Twitter. Uh, one of the great Fs of TGAF. And uh, he hasn't been on in a while, so it's good to have one of our best Fs back on TGAF. Brought Appreciate the time. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Nice seeing your faces. We'll do it All soon, right. hopefully live. See you soon, bud. All right, man. And we're joined for a third week in a row because he is so gracious with his time. Former Bill Scout Gerald Dixon joining us on Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK. Gerald, thanks for coming back. Man, thanks for having me back again, fellas. Uh, the analysis has uh, been so good, and uh, so it means a lot to us that you'd uh, keep in, uh, your willingness to keep coming back and sharing it with us. And uh, a fascinating game this week that um, let's just jump into it because uh, 
even though Seattle is in the NFC, uh, the Bills have had a couple cracks at measuring stick games. You can maybe call New England a measuring stick opponent because of the history, but New England's not the same as it's been. Seattle is the same, much like Kansas City and Tennessee being a kind of an established team in, in and of itself, uh, especially making the AFC Championship game last year. So what are your thoughts on what the Bills are looking at here? Well, how significant is this game even though it is a non-conference game, even though there is still eight games left in the season, but when Seattle's coming to your town, what, uh, what kind of emphasis should the, the organization be putting on this one? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think you should put a lot of pressure on just one game, but um, as competitors, you always want to be tested um, to see where you're at. And I believe Seattle is a good test at the halfway mark, as you, as you can say. And the way I look at it is um, – Organization-wise and just player-wise, I would just look at my young talent to see how well those guys have matured. And the young guys that I'm talking about is um, the quarterback, Josh Allen, um, Tredavious White, um, Tremaine Edmonds. Um, It's a big game for these guys to say, you know what, Um, NFL, we have arrived and um, the Buffalo Bills are here to stay for a while because I believe that's what um, Brandon and Sean is trying to instill and build um, with the Bills. Yeah, they haven't really had a statement victory this year. They've had nice wins. I think the, the win against the Rams was, was very impressive. Um, would have been better had they not given up a lead after or whatever, however many points it was, 21 or 24 points. Um, but there hasn't been that persuasive. I used that word earlier in the week. That just, like, convince me. Convince me that, that everything's going to be okay from a fan standpoint. Uh, right. You know, like – this could be one of those games. I think no matter how you beat a team like the Seahawks, uh, you're probably saying that was a persuasive win. I agree. Um, because I know that Josh is a, is a competitor and he wants to come compare himself against the top quarterbacks. And other than Russell Wilson, he's coming to town. So you got to sit there and say, okay, good. I know that I don't want to make it um, myself versus a quarterback, um, Russell Wilson, but at the end of the day, um, we all know it's going to come down to that, right? It's going to come down to third downs. It's going to come down to explosive plays. It's going to come down to who's not turning the ball over and who's going to control the ball game with legs and his arm. And whatever quarterback um, plays the better half of that game um, in the second half, like I always say, football doesn't really get played until the the fourth quarter. Uh, That's where you're going to get um, the winner. Gerald, last week we talked – a lot about cornerbacks and what makes a good shutdown cornerback and kind of a, a similar conversation, I guess. Uh, I'm fascinated by these receivers that are, that are going to be on the field on Sunday, particularly for the Seahawks, DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, two very different guys, but you mentioned Tredavious white. This could be one of those, those statement type of games um, as a former cornerback yourself and somebody who's coached the position. What is, the challenge that Tredavious White faces going up against a guy like DK Metcalf with his just physical gift, size, speed, the whole package? Well, like you said already, um, just big, fast, explosive um, human being, right? But not that great of change of direction and being able to um, change his speed. And I always thought it was easier when he played against just straight line, fast guys because at the end of the day, if you're playing off man, like Tredavious is very good at, and he's good at reading routes, 
those taller, um, explosive players with a straight line speed and not a lot of wiggle in their hips typically tell you what route they're going to run once they get into about eight to ten yards. So once you're off and you're backpedaling, slow and backpedaling out, and you're reading through the quarterback through the receiver, um, it's a telltale what route he is going to run. So I, I, I think it's going to be a difficult matchup, but just because of the route savvy um, that Trey, Trey White has in terms of reading routes and the average route running ability of DK Metcalf, I think Trey Davis um, is going to fare out pretty well with that matchup. But also, when you look at it, you got to go on the other side. It's okay. You can stop the first route, right? And then plays get extended. And we all know that Russell is one of the better quarterback at extending plays and throwing those beautiful placement balls to, um, to those receivers. And what about Tyler Lockett on the other side? Um, lines up in the slot a ton, and it's hard to, you know, be. it would be hard enough if it was just a race DK Metcalf and, you know, that's that. But to have a guy like Tyler Lockett on the other side, what challenge is that going to present to the secondary? Well, just in, in terms of, I believe Tyler is, is when he gets in a slot, that's when he's really, really good. And um, T. Johnson, just, this year he's been real inconsistent in terms of his man coverage um, ability. And when you have a guy with the route running ability and the body control and the hands and just the understanding of zone versus man, and he and Russ are on, I mean, they're, they're, they're locked in right now. They've been locked in for, for a couple of years, but right now they're in sync with each other. That's where I think the game can be changed um, and in favor of the um, Seattle with the nickel and slot um, matchup. I would give that bump up to um, Seattle, in my, uh, my humble opinion. Now we know that Matt Milano has already been ruled out uh, for Sunday. Tremaine Edmonds uh, has had a pretty shaky season so far, and A.J. Klein has not wowed people. Um, I'm being diplomatic, I think. Uh, here you got Russell Wilson coming in and we just talked about where he can throw the ball. What would be your level of concern or what can the bills do maybe with their call-ups or what the, maybe they can do something on the defensive line. I don't know. I mean, that's where, that's where your expertise comes in. Well, what would you, what would you do to stop Russell Wilson from, from the, his ability to just take off and run against a, a defense that's struggled to stop it? Unlike most mobile quarterbacks, um, most guys are just trying to get outside the pocket and try to go to their um, strong shoulder. But what Russell's shown you over the years is he's willing to step up and out to throw the ball. That's going through navigating the pocket well, um, getting good depth and getting away from those tall guys. Because I don't think a lot of people understand that's one of the better things that Russell does. He gets away from those guys up front and gives himself an opportunity to see over the line of scrimmage. Because everyone's always saying, oh, he's a short quarterback. No, he gets away. And then he has enough poise and feel in the pocket to navigate that. But what I believe is if you can have those two inside guys um, power rush, bull rush, put take those guards and put it back into um, Russell's lap and take those two ends and form a cup um, and not necessarily get to him, but make sure that if he is going to go anywhere, he's gonna, if he steps up, he's going to have to step up into um the lap of his two guards, and if he does go outside, maintain that outside leverage 
And then that's where I believe that you can make him truly a pocket quarterback without getting out and extending those plays. Do you and think get a Harrison little Phillips and Ed Oliver and those guys will be able to do that? Um, I believe Ed can um, because I'm not um, so high on the Seattle's offensive line. And, you know, when you have a guy, Quentin Jefferson, going back and playing against his team, um, you get a little bit of more uh, – you get – get a little bit more pumped. So I think this might be one of his better games. Um, and he understands those guys. And and I think he'll play a little bit better and give, give those guys a little more push up front and also get his hands up because he's been um, been able to knock the ball down um, the last couple of weeks. When you flip to the other side of the ball, the Seahawks, everybody talks about all the yards they give up. Um, they've, they've been getting toasted over the top of the defense uh, in, in the passing game, but they are getting Jamal Adams back. Um, what... I know he's just one guy. Um, can one guy make that big of a difference? Uh, is he good enough to, you know, help some of the problems that they've been having? Well, when you when you speak of Jamal, Jamal is a jack of all trades, a master of none, in my opinion. He's more of a. You got to be aware of him when he's around the line of scrimmage. On the back end, I'm not really worried about him because even from college to the NFL, his production in the past game has not been high, right? He's an average at best cover guy. Um, the game that he did play against um, New England, I mean, Julian Edelman probably had the best game that he had all year. So if you're Brian Dable, you're trying to find ways to put him into coverage. And if you're Josh Allen and Brian, you're trying to locate where he is in the line of scrimmage or at the line of scrimmage because he's very good at blitzing um, as an eighth defender. He's a very sure tackler. Um, he's not afraid to shoot gaps when they w- open up. So when I look at him, I look at him more of him and Buda Baker in the same um, realm as guys that are, are safeties, but they play more of a dime linebacker role and more disruptive around the line of scrimmage than on the back end. So on the back end, I don't believe they'll get help in terms of coverage, but where they can get help is is when he's a blitzer and he's a very and he's good at that, um, as you can see over the years, as a playmaker. You know, Gerald, you sound like you know what you're talking about. A little bit. <laughs> but I don't know. I'm not convinced. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm just, I mean, so, the, so the analysis is awesome. I, like the fact that you're willing to come on this show every week, it's a blessing. Right. Thank you. Right. I'm, I'm being, I'm being sarcastic, a wise ass, which, um, <laughs> which you're good at. Yeah, that's true. So, so now, let me throw, I, I enjoy doing it. I don't know if I'm good at it. I enjoy doing it. No, you're pretty good at it. So let me throw something at you real quick. And, um, and if you think about it and there, there, when you go into games, it's all to me, you look at the matchups and who wins these matchups and most likely those that's who's going to come out victorious at the end of the game um if you're the bills and you're and you're saying this um seattle has struggled in coverage the bills have run more 10 personnel that's four wide receivers uh, more than most teams in the nfl you'd like to get into that package because over the last few weeks you've seen tyler croft either put the ball on the ground or catch a wide open pass and stumble so your fourth receiver is better than your you're, you're tight end. Um, Knox is just coming off of um, his COVID list, and he's been inconsistent with the ball in his hand. So if you can get to where um, you can run the ball in 10 personnel and be creative with that, um, also find ways to put Adams in coverage with either Beasley um, or Steph Diggs, and then you can find those little matchups that you would like a little bit more than your traditional ones with the tight end versus, um, versus Adams. My humble opinion. What do you think about – there's been a lot of questions about, you know, first four weeks, Josh Allen, 
crushing man coverage. Uh, they're running all these crossing patterns, and everything's just clicking. Big plays all over the place, tons of yards, tons of touchdowns. Last four weeks, teams are playing more zone. They're dropping back on them. Um, what do you, it's not as if teams are just going to do that forever and he'll never hit another big play again. What does he have to do to break through that, maybe either to change how defenses are playing or just beat how they're playing and get those those big plays when teams do decide to to play more zone? So look at it in two folds. As a play caller, um, be a little bit more creative in um, the ways that you're designing plays for guys to get open, one. Two, it comes on your shoulders now, um, Josh, to say, well, I'm going to throw an accurate ball in the right spot and to the right person to execute those um, vertical throws. And when he gives um, guys those opportunities, just finish it with a catch. You know, you mentioned at the top wanting to look at Josh Allen and how he develops and, you know, where his development is in this game. What are the things you're looking for uh, there and maybe projected long-term? What does he need to show to be considered uh, in that level with a quarterback like Russell Wilson and when it comes up time for a new contract to be paid like a quarterback like Russell Wilson? Well, the ability to control the game, um, for me, that's one, and I'll get into that a little bit more, just, just two examples. Control the game and also win games when you're not supposed to. So beat good teams. Just don't beat five teams that's under 500. Now, when I say um, control the game, execute on third down, right? Play keep away. And keep away means don't turn the ball over to the other team with the other helmet, right? And when those explosive plays uh, present themselves, execute and finish games. Because at times you'll see Josh have just a, like, just a mind, like he just, he just loses it mentally. And you'll have one or two hiccups in the game, but... Those one, the one or two hiccups are in the red zone or they're backed up. So now you're giving the, the opponent um, an opportunity to score. Um, and now with the explosive plays, man, sometimes his, that arm is so strong, he gets so much and, and he's so hyped up that he rips it and it's two or three yards past the um, receiver. It's just more of just getting comfortable with your ability, being comfortable in the pocket and poise to just deliver it and drop it off like you've done at practice the hundreds and thousands of times that you've done it. And being halfway through his third year, third-year quarterback that started from almost day one, how far in that development curve is he? How much better can he be in some of the things that he still hasn't mastered yet? Well, look at it like this, and, and I know that I'm not going to – Josh was a, was a junior college quarterback, right? And then he played at Wyoming for a year, two, right? So what you're getting is a guy that hadn't thrown the ball a lot around elite coverage and um, with elite players. So essentially, he's not, to me, he's not in the category of where he was. Everybody was saying in the first four games, he's an NFL MVP. He's not there yet. He's still in the phase of, learning the game, learning coverage, and learning his ability and being comfortable with it. So I don't know many Juco quarterbacks that come out into the NFL and in two and a half years are ready to make that jump to elite ability. I've known guys that played for four years and they're still not ready. So to answer your question, I go any further. I think he's 
a second tier, third tier quarterback right now with his play that he's shown you. Um, does he have the um, traits to be an elite quarterback? I think he has a trait to be a good quarterback. I think he has a trait to be, as I've always said, his comp is Matthew Stafford with athletic ability. You know, Gerald, uh, without like getting into super deep nuance of quarterback play, um, and this is a feel thing. It's and this is somebody who you know I throw out all those caveats. Didn't play the game, you know, not at any level that to speak of. And my, I tend to believe that what we have seen in the past few weeks of Josh Allen is closer to where he truly is right now in his development than those first three or four games. Uh, that those th first three or four games, as much as it was dazzling and everybody jumped and said, all right, he figured it out. Um, I would like to have seen that to continue, of course, but I think that the fact that it slid back compared to what we've seen last year, it just seems, it just seems to me that this is closer than right. why was he able to thrive so much in those first four weeks. Now, of course, you can look at the quality of the opponent and things like that, but it seems as though it's a totally different guy. And I don't really think anything happened injury-wise. I don't think that he's a guy whose confidence gets shook. Well, I mean, maybe it did. That's a fragile thing. Some guys are super confident, but you can still get in your head. I mean, there's all, I, I, I'm asking you as you've been around it, the right. sports psychology of it, or what you've seen from an X's and O's standpoint, it's just such a, an, a, a, a stark line was drawn right. uh, between those first four games and what we've seen since. Right. Now, I think everyone was, was excited just because you saw the growth. It's just a, just a jump from year two to year three. You, for the first four games, you're saying, whoa, I've never seen it before. And I'm like, man. But I've always said when you give coordinators um, enough film to study you, um, they're going to take away – the things that you do well, and they're going to force you to play and make you throw it for, for a quarterback, make throws with things that you, with routes and concepts that you're not comfortable with. The real good ones, the elite ones, regardless if you take it away, they can find a way. I love what you saw last night with Devontae um, Adams on that third down route. Yeah. A Rod said he's going to put it in there and he's going to put it in a spot that you're not going to get to. I'm just better than you are. So, the third or fourth thing that I do well is still better, is still good enough to get it done. So you can take away the best couple things I do, but I still, I'm I got still, enough. I'm still going to do it. Yeah. I'm, I'm still good enough. And when you're truly elite, regardless of what you do, I'm still better than what you're trying to do. Now, if you said I'm going to put three guys on this one guy and I got to throw it to my worst player, yeah, I'm going to make my worst player look good. So long story short, to fix it, coordinators have seen what Josh and Dave's um, are comfortable with. Now you have to go to your left hand, if you're right-handed, and play with your left hand and develop that. And now take checkdowns. And the, the small window of opportunities that you get, you have to take advantage of them. And that's what I haven't seen the Bills offense do in the last few weeks, if that answers your question. It does, yeah. When we flip it to the other side of the ball um this defense you know it's it's interesting these two defensive secondaries the seahawks are allowing so many yards but they're picking the ball off uh, they're getting interceptions uh the bills 
defense doesn't really allow the big plays, but you're looking at Tredavious White, Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer. None of them have an interception. Um, how much of that is luck of getting the, the ball thrown your way? And how much, how much is that an indictment of them that they're not making those plays and enforcing those mistakes? And how much is that holding them back, I guess? Now, in the, in the past, it was the opposite, right? They'll give up a few, but they'll make a few, right? And that evened out everything. Um, you know, interceptions are things that they, they come in bunches. And um, some guys, they, it, the ball just gets to them. But at the end of the day, most of the times when you get picks, they're going to say tips and overthrows, right? All right. Tips are when guys at the line of scrimmage are getting their hands up or the quarterback has enough pressure in his face that he's not going to throw a, a, a pass that he can step into and feel comfortable with it, right? Overthrows, right? Same thing. There hasn't been enough pressure on the quarterback to allow those guys on the back end to get tips, overthrows, and just inaccurate passes from what I've seen um, from the previous years. Previous years, they were they were getting after the quarterback. Quarterback wasn't comfortable. Um, there's indecisions, inaccuracy of the throws, and that's when DBs tend to make more um, more plays on the ball. So until they, they improve their ability to get pressure on the quarterback, that's when you're going to see it, and you're not going to get pressure if you allow um, teams to run for almost five yards per carry. How much do you think Tremaine Edmonds' shoulder injury from earlier in the season, I believe it's not on the injury report anymore the last few weeks, but do you think it's still affecting his play in any way? Well, you know what? Injuries are part of the game, right? And at some point, you have to deal with it. And shoulder or no shoulder, um, if you're watching the game, he has a lot of false reads um, when you see it. Now, he's never been a, a take-on, knock-back, um, the blocker type guy. He's always been a, a long, rangy, um, fairly um, above-average athlete that can slip blocks at the point of attack. But he, he's never been truly um, a downhill thump Mike linebacker. He's always been a guy where if you run away from him, he can run you down and make those plays. So at some point um, – you got to grow up, bite the bit, toughen up, and um, and bloody somebody's nose. You're Mike Linebacker. End of the day. Would he have been better off not being a Mike, line, Mike Linebacker, you think? Maybe playing outside? Or would, um, it, would he have had the same problems? I don't even think it's a, it's a truly a, a problem. I just believe that he's... We've never seen we've never seen a linebacker six four or six five, right? Yeah. Like when you're that tall and that rangy, it's you typically you typically play high, and it's hard to get underneath guys or blockers and knock them back. But what he does have, he has like long arms, and he has he has God given ability to run. So at some point, he's going to have to find the way that he plays at a high level, and that's studying. Go back and study Erlacher. All right, figure out what Erlacher did. Erlacher was real good at keying, diagnosing, getting downhill, and finding plays, right? Look at Luke Keekley. At Mike Linebacker's instincts, and I don't think he has the greatest instincts, he has decent instincts, but he has athletic ability. So spend a little bit more time in the film room, understanding where the pulls and the, and the, and the zones are going. Find your crack within that defense, and at times you just got to pull the trigger and shoot it. And, I, and there's times that he's just holding back too much for me and not just – just going. Like you see Milano just run in there and just throw his body around with no regard. Trey, not so much. 
Yeah, and uh, Milano pays the price for it. Uh, another game uh, that he'll be on the sidelines. But when he's out there, you, you know what you're going to get. That's the only way that he knows how to play. I'm telling you, he, he, he's not big enough to, to sit there and take on 300-pounders, um, shock, shed, and, and, and get rid of them and play. So he's going to try to find creases within the, the defense, um, shoot it, and he has enough speed and closing ability to, and suddenness to, to finish the play. At some Darren, point, you got to play linebacker. Is Darren Lee somebody that can help this defense if he gets out on the field at some point soon? Um, just with his sheer athletic ability and his ability to run, yes. And he's always had good coverage ability. Um, now just learning the defense and, and find his way to, to fit, um, I believe he can help. But um, D. Lee's always had the issue of taking on blockers and being physical at the point of attack. And at some point – you got to figure out your role and how you're going to either not take blocks on, slip them, and, and, and get in the backfield, or just every now and then thump somebody. Gerald, um, let's end up with uh, on a positive note here, because uh, I think that this player, as much credit as he's gotten, I think is still underrated, because I think that's how impressive he's been. And part of that's my fault. I haven't written about him as much as I probably should have. I think Stefan Diggs has been incredible. And I think I see him on a weekly basis, making it look easy. Right. Now I know he has his baggage or from whatever per, you know, whatever happened in Minnesota where things didn't go well. We haven't seen that here. Maybe we never do. Um, maybe it's all a myth. I don't know. You know, some players have this mystique that follows them around and, and it's not necessarily justified. What's your take on, him so far, what you've seen, and um, the idea that Minnesota decided to trade this guy away. Well, I'm not going to touch on why they traded him away. They, 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 they've had him for a while, and then they thought that his value wasn't worth the price that they were paying. So they did what they had to do. I, I, I love him. I think he's one of the. I think he's a top ten receiver in the NFL. And again, you can't go wrong when you have a guy coming from Maryland, all right, Montgomery County, Maryland. <laughs> Feel with that, right? I didn't um, even think of that. <laughs> it's coming. You're such a homer. It's coming. The, uh, the metropolitan area DMV is what they call it now. It's coming. So, but you are a homer. In, in in terms of what Steph brings to the game, um, he's in the same area in terms of or same ranking with me with Devontae Adams as a route runner, right? Those guys and, and Keenan Allen. Their ability to change speed and separate at the top of the route is unbelievable. And when you have, uh, and when you're a quarterback, you know that he's going to get separation. And what he's brought to this team is the element of being able to uncover himself when he's going against an elite defender, and just the confidence that. The quarterback has in him is just saying, hey, listen, I know that even if I steer him down, he's going to get open. And that's what he what, what he brings in terms of if you want to say a number one receiver. Yeah, that's what he is. And a superstar. Why, OK, so what is it about me, my untrained eye when I see him? Why? What am I picking up on that's so impressive that makes him different than just anybody else? Why does he make it to the layman? Why does he make it look so easy? As opposed um, to, you see a great receiver out there. You can tell he's working. You know, he's uh, you know a, an underneath guy, slot guy, 
or just a guy who runs, you know, fly patterns. There's something about it that just makes it look no, you, you're stunned when he doesn't make the play. Well, well stunned of, maybe too harsh a word, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I get you. His ability to change speed, right? And I, I always talk about that because everybody always thinks that if you're a receiver, you got to run fast. Hey, tip, yeah, yeah, run fast. But if I know that you're running fast and I'm off at eight, eight yards, I can flip and run with you. I already have an eight-yard start on you. But what Steph does, he is so smooth and sudden at the same time. So you see him coming off, and you're like, he's not running fast. Then he has the ability to change speed, then put his foot in the ground without any change in, um, um, change in, in his body and be able to come out of it with explosion to create separation. So, you, so he lulls a lot of people to sleep. You say, oh, yeah, he's, just, he's not running fast. Then he speeds up, stops explodes out of it with a cut and that's where you see him and you say well he's not even running that hard he's not he just looks real smooth doing it yeah he's incredible yeah maybe gonna be the best receiver on the uh who will be the best receiver in this game on sunday oh steph Diggs. think it's not close he's that much better than dk and and lockett um see dk is what if metcalf was from baltimore then he, I mean, I still say Steph Diggs. All right, um, just got. I got to even the. I got to even the scales in some way for this. Well, DK DK is an Ole Miss guy, uh, so that might be playing into it here. If he was uh, a Bama guy, I don't know. No, I, I respect DK. What if Tyler Lockett went to Johns Hopkins? Then, uh, then who? He's still out in Baltimore, so he don't count. Nah, so he got to be from Montgomery County. But either way, no, I, I like Tyler. I think Tyler is one of the most underrated receivers in the um, in the NFL. But DK. He's so like big, fast. It, it's ridiculous, right? But at at some point, you're gonna have to develop a little bit more route savvy to scare um, an elite corner. Because, like I said earlier, when you're playing against a guy that predetermines his, his route about three yards, be able and, uh, being able to not come to a full stop, um, it's easier to to Put your foot in the ground and come out of it if you're a corner. Rather than a guy like Steph Diggs or Tyler Lockett that can change speed, stop, get out of it immediately, right? And just suddenness to get out of his break. You'll see a lot of chops in, in um, DK um, in his feet at the top of his route. So if he ever gets better at the top of his route, which is, I mean, I haven't seen it, um, he, I, I would put him into that elite, elite category with Julio Jones because he has a lot of Julio Jones traits. Right, but Julio Jones over the last years has become one of the better route runners for a tall and explosive guy. So the the comparison to Megatron, I think it's it's, I think it's comp. I think it's comparable because when Megatron you, only he only had a few routes in him as well too. When you were a corner, did you ever have anybody do anything close to you like DK Metcalf did to Buda Baker a few weeks ago when he chased him down and? Uh, Tackle them. Impossible. Now, I've ran a lot of guys down. I've walked a lot of people down. Um, yeah, that ain't happening. I don't care if you run a 4-1. I, I was talking to, um, you know, I was talking to Roman Harper. Uh, I give a shout-out to Roman. Uh, and I said, I I would have to either pull a, say I pulled a hamstring or something, but there's no way <laughs> on this green earth that I'm going to get walked down um, like that. I, I, 
You can give props Shane Bailey having it happen to him. Ben Watson, of all people. You remember that play? Yeah. Ben is a tight end. Yeah, right. Ben, bro. Yeah. Shane Bailey, you know, Hall of Famer. Yeah, okay. Tight end. I mean, I understand Don Beebe chasing down Leon Lett. All right? Listen, 200 and – I mean, and Ben, you know what? They're, ben can roll too. But either way, that's a corner running down a tight end. Not a receiver running down a defensive back. No, not happening. I'm, I'm, something's going to happen. My hamstring, a cramp, something. But there's no way that, that you're, you're going to walk me down. That's going to be on NFL Films for the next 150 years of the greatest walk down ever. Oh, and based on what you're saying, all he had to do was run in some zigzags, make DK change direction, and he would have been all set. That's all I'm saying. Do something. Run across the <laughs> Do something. Act like you're out of breath, but just don't get walked. <laughs> he's going to be a meme for a long time. Oh, man. He's gonna, you better make some money off of that. <laughs> or, or if he just stopped, DK Metcalf would have kept going for about 10 yards. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> do something other than get tackled. <laughs> Gerald Dixon, thanks for doing this, man. Uh, I, I don't know. Can we chalk you up for next week already? I mean, is this becoming a, are, are we wearing you out? No, 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 no. Pencil me in. I'm here. This is a lot of fun. Well, we'll come up with some. We don't want to just break down the game. We'll come up with some positional stuff. I, I, I feel a lot smarter after we talk. You, you, listen, we got to get in some top ten, top five. We got to do something. All right. I, I, I got a lot of. I got a list. I'll That's shoot the, you so that way you're prepared. So that way you're not doing it off the top of your head. A couple of days in advance, I'll throw a topic out there, and um, and uh, we'll see how many uh, Maryland slash Alabama guys end up on the list. Yeah, and, I want to know. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead, John. Well, I, I want to know. Maybe you can think about this over the week if you got a power ranking or a list of Alabama media beat writers and where certain people might fall on that list. <laughs> you follow Mike Rodak down there. You know what, Mike is down there. How? Listen, how's he doing? Does he does he love T Town? He lives in Birmingham. He, oh, he's in Birmingham. Yeah, one of the most underrated cities. Right? One of the most underrated cities. Never been. You've but I think he's doing been? well. I think he and his family love it. And I think they're I think he's doing well. And in fact I saw he's writing he's writing basketball stories now. So they're you know, he's tracking down Nate Oats and talking about Crimson Tide basketball. So I think between uh, between those two seasons, he's he's plenty busy. It's like covering it's gotta be like covering an NFL team. Probably not much different than when he was covering the Bills when you go down there and cover the Crimson Tide. Yeah, you just you just can't step on Nick's toes. <laughs> I think that may Easier have said than done. I think we've heard some story. Yeah, <laughs> you get you get put in the penalty box real quick. Don't st- does he wear lifts? Huh? Does he wear lifts? Uh, you don't pretend like you didn't hear me. You heard me. <laughs> does he wear? Li- <laughs> does Nick Saban wear lifts? No, he just looks like a giant because he's sitting on top of all those national championship rings. I see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll stop there. Gerald Dixon. Uh, Thanks for doing this, man. Uh, very nice of you. All right. Appreciate you. Thanks for having take me care. on. All right. Take care.
here he is coming off a 3-0-1 week because he was dealing out bonus picks. Joel Staniszewski on the line from Vegas, joining uh, Tim Graham and friends, brought to you by CTBK. Joel, 3-0-1 last week. He told you to take the bills on the money line. He told you to take the under. And we forced him, I think, kind of, well, I think out of habit, he gave us a pick against the spread. He said to take the bills and give the three points, and it ends right at three, 24-21. So that's a push. And he just threw in, just for the hell of it, threw in a bonus pick, Denver, uh, which I think caught a lot of people by surprise, uh, including their opponent. And uh, so Joel is now up to 9-4-1 and one, uh, on the year. That's not bad. And that's, that's all against good. the spread. That's Vegas. That's money. That's profit right there. 9-4-1 and one is solid. You're happy with You've got to be happy uh, with that, right? Just because, just because our, uh, our voting people can't count votes doesn't mean I can't count money. That's right. Yeah, I don't know. It's like Raleigh Massimino running the four corners uh, down there. Uh, <laughs> although I think that reference predates uh, everybody. Raleigh was the uh, UNLV basketball coach uh, for a bit when I was out there. Pretty much just stole money from UNLV uh, to put together a donkey program. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, strange going on in Nevada. Maybe by the time anybody's listening to this, uh, Nevada will have decided – uh, what it's uh, what's happened in its state for uh, its elections, Alaska. Nobody cares about Alaska. We haven't heard from Alaska yet either. But yeah, they don't even have anything yet. They they don't even know what they're talking about. Nevada's just going to waltz in once it's all decided, so that way they weren't controversial. Uh, right. Yeah. They'll just wait. They'll just wait till it's decided, and then oh yeah, by the way, we're ready. We're ready to tell you. I I do think that had something to do with it a little bit. Because uh, Arizona was called so quickly, I think Nevada's like, eh. Nevada went like a full 24 hours without reporting a vote. Known. Like yeah. zero. I think, yeah. I think out. Arizona. But that's what they do. They, they do a once-a-day update. They didn't on Wednesday, though. Tuesday night, they gave an update. And then, uh, so I go to bed at 1 or 2 in the morning, or I don't know what it was. But it was, at, and then they give a report on television that, uh, Nevada is not going to update until tomorrow at noon Eastern time at the earliest tomorrow, meaning Wednesday. And then they didn't do anything all day. And then they came out Wednesday, late Wednesday night and said, man, maybe Thursday. Taking their time. Imagine if that's what it I was, was going to say your tax dollars at work, but you don't, there are no state taxes. In no Nevada. tax dollars. Uh, <laughs> I think we're like 49th in the country in education. So those are your casino yeah. losses at work. Because that's who pays. Exactly. That's how the state gets paid your, out there. Your, all those your, your resort fees. Yes. Me, I pay the taxes when I go out there. My hotel tax, and oh, you know, yeah. the whatever else I leave out there. So Joel, uh, Seattle coming to Orchard Park. Uh, the Seahawks are favored by three. The total is fifty-five. The numbers haven't really moved all week. Uh, what's your What's your general take here? Um, for your for your six yeah, the, bills, the, uh, the the numbers have been pretty pretty solid all week. Um, you'll notice some some juice moving around. Uh, bills minus three or plus three minus one ten minus one fifteen. Some spots now have it at minus one twenty. Uh, it's just kind of moving all around. Uh, but the the juices that, that three that key number, especially when we see the bills and and Seahawks playing fairly close games. 
um, they, they don't want to really move off of that three. And until they get some serious action on one side or another, they'll just move around the juice here and there. Um, I don't really see that, that number moving too much. Uh, it's pretty much a, it's a pretty solid number. Um, I, I would have, if, if I was just looking at this, at the spread and, and in a perfect world and not, uh, uh, a less popular team versus a more popular team. I would say the Seahawks may be minus two and a half, one and a half or two and a half, depending upon uh, like weather is a huge thing. Also with the total um, injuries are a huge thing, but I, I think three might be a touch high, um, but it's not way out of whack. I don't think. What about the total? I mean, with it being, total seems about I, right. I know the weather I mean, plays in a part there, but. Yeah, weather pay, play, will play a huge part into where it moves to, um, but it seems pretty much spot on. Two offenses that can move the ball, one uh, uh, and one of which is known for scoring more. More recently, Buffalo has calmed down their scoring, but still has a really high-powered offense against two very lackluster defenses. Seattle being a probably the I think they're the worst team in the league against the pass. Um, and because of their injuries to the running back room, I feel like they're going to be passing even more than normal. So uh, you're going to see a lot of passing. You're going to see, a, uh, as a Bills fan, when you watch it, you're going to see Seattle just marching down the field, and you're going to be like, just please stop them, you know, on like a third and seven, when you normally are thinking like, oh, cool, punt. Not going to happen. You, you might not see any punts in this game. Um, so yeah, the, the total seems it, it's a little high, but it makes sense for these two teams, uh, the way that they're playing and the way that they can move the ball and the way that their defenses are, are not playing. The total almost seem low. I mean, I know it's, it's what the highest over under in the, in the league this week, I think last I checked yeah, I was looking I've, earlier, but I've, I mean, I've seen a couple like low fifties, but nothing at 55, it's definitely the highest. Um, but I mean, yeah. if and the Seahawks get to 30, it's, yeah, you can see you it pretty both easily teams getting to 30 quickly. Um, so, you know, if, if um, I'm not a huge better of, of totals, but this is, this, this team, this looking at it on paper, this seems like this is just a stone cold lock to go over. Uh Oh, let me jot that down. I'm not saying put two stars next to it, <laughs> but I am I am saying I am saying take the over. You wouldn't bet a finger. What about a toe? Uh, <laughs> like a pinky toe? Yeah, a pinky toe. I'll, I'll bet a pinky toe. Yeah, right. You don't need that. I'm find what I get back on on the pinky toe. Yeah, what's he betting? Yeah, he's betting. He's betting to lose that. I mean, is he getting your pinky toe back? <laughs> I wouldn't bet my pinky toe for somebody right, else's pinky six toe. toe. I, yeah, I need like I need like a ten thousand dollars versus a pinky. Then I then I'd bet it. I think. How about this number, Joel? What do you make of this? This is a straight up number, um, but the Seahawks uh, have won ten in a row when playing in the Eastern Time Zone. That is incredible to me. Uh, you're talking about, you know, the, the dreaded Pacific to Eastern time zone uh, switch. Uh, I mean, that's supposed to be the big 
Uh, the big problem that teams that play out in the Pacific have is coming east as opposed to, you know, teams having an easier time when they go east to west. But here are the Seahawks. Haven't lost since Jacksonville in 2017. Uh, ten in a row. And let me go back a little farther. You can go back to 2013, and they are 20 and 5. Ten in a row, twenty and five. What do you make of that? And and can you apply? And how do you apply that? Yeah, that's that's a, a big thing. Uh, traveling west to east, and they're the furthest west, and we're one of the furthest east. Um, I, I don't know what flight is further. If you're if you're going from probably Seattle, like Miami is probably the furthest. Um, but that's normally something that you take into account is a team traveling west to east and Seattle really doesn't, uh, have that big of a problem. Uh, even when they went from, uh, Seattle to, uh, Toronto a couple of years ago, that was a, a blowout. Um, and, and I know that the, the time before that they came to Buffalo was when we opening, opening week. Uh, I don't remember the year, but uh, the uh, Brian Mormon threw a touchdown to Ryan Denny or yes, something like I that on a big field goal. Was something the game was amazing. I want to say um, it was two thousand and four, maybe would have had. Well, maybe that, it was before realignment, so that way it uh, wasn't that year. But six or seven. It was a little later, I think. Was, okay. Yeah, because I because I was I lived out here at that point in time, but that I mean that wasn't that was before. Um, Russell Wilson, that was like Matt Hasselback, I, I think. And, you know, so you can't even compare that game. And you, can, you can't even really compare the, you can't even compare the Toronto game because the team that we have now is, is nothing compared to that team. And Seattle mostly too, with the exception of Russell Wilson. And that's probably it. I can't think of any other player or at least starter that played um, when, when Seattle destroyed us in, in Toronto. Yeah, that was 2009, or now I just lost it. 2008. Yeah, Ryan Denny, 19-yard pass from Brian Mormon in the third quarter to bust it up. Great play, I remember that. Other big uh, names in that game, Robert Royal with a 30-yard touchdown from Trent Edwards. Roscoe Parrish had a 63-yard punt return. So, huge day. If If you started Bills, defense, and special teams... Uh, you oh yeah, probably you were chilling. Fantasy league that week. I don't know. Five. Matt Hasselbeck got sacked hey, Joel. times through an interception. Oh yeah, you definitely won your league if you played the Bills defense that week. I did. I remember doing that that week. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so Joel, what's uh, here? We are at the halfway mark with your Buffalo Bills. Um, what are your just your general thoughts? Maybe not from a betting standpoint, but uh, what's your state of mind heading into the the backstretch here? Yeah, a, a lot of a lot of uh, people look at the the season in quarters. So the first quarter we did really well. Second quarter we did what two and two, uh, and this is probably the toughest stretch of four games that we have. Um, if we can go two and two over these next four games, I'd be really happy. Uh, anything more than that is is just amazing. Um, so this is this is really going to see what type of team we are. We started out looking pretty much unstoppable on offense, 
Our defense has kind of stepped up in the last couple of games. Our offense is moving the ball, but not scoring as much. Um, and and that, the, the point of, of the season is to get into the playoffs. That's when you want to be at your absolute best and your absolute healthiest is, in, is going into the playoffs. Who cares if you win, you know, 15 in a row, 16 in a row, like the Patriots did, and then you lose in the Super Bowl. Like, great, you had an awesome regular season, you lost in the Super Bowl. And same goes for the, the Bills and those, those four consecutive Super Bowls. So you want your team to be winning and you want your team to be playing well and, and getting through the games that you're supposed to get through. Um, but you want to be at your best at the end of the season going into the playoffs. So uh, this is, the, this is the, the time of the year where you want to see your team firing on all cylinders on, on all levels of the game. So, you know, if, if we start to turn the corner here and, and go back to the offense that we saw in the first four weeks, and our defense continues to improve, um, then we're, I think we're in a great spot. Um, you know, we beat the Patriots on a game that maybe a lot of fans were disappointed in, that we, we barely beat this team. But, you know, we're still going against the, one of the greatest coaches, if not the greatest coach in the history of the NFL, regardless of players that he has on the field. So, you know, winning a game basically by the amount of points that we were supposed to win by, so says Las Vegas and the odds makers, then that's a victory. Seattle has won games, but they haven't really beaten anybody substantial that I would say. Um, so I, I think I think we're in a good spot. I, I think if we continue to improve offensively uh, and defensively, I, I think we're going to be in, in a great spot as the season comes to an end. Speaking of Vegas, won this game. Oh, go ahead, Joe. I just want to, if the Bills won this game outright, how might that change your perception or the sharp gambler's perception of how good the Bills are? I think a lot. Um, What we see a lot of times from, you know, uh, commentators and, and pundits is when the Bills win, it's the other team lost the game. Well, you know, Cam Newton fumbled and this and that. And yeah, it's great that that's how he lost the game. Um, but I think at some point when a team keeps winning and if they beat a team that they're not supposed to beat or a team that's supposed to be a close game, then you start to, you know, realize that you have to start taking them a little bit more seriously when it comes to, to setting lines. I wanted to ask you uh, if you've followed it at all. The, uh, you mentioned Vegas, uh, you know, having the Bills as a three-point favorite last week. They win by three, the odds makers. You know, it, it is, uh, it's, it's all mathematics. It's algorithms. It's actuarial science. You know, there really isn't a lot. I think that people who do really enjoy, uh, get into the visceral aspect of gambling, a lot of the fun is taken out of it when you try to explain to them how much it's just math, really. It's not even, and it's not the math like you used to see in the old days with people sitting in rooms with notebooks and pens and right. put, creating numbers. And, and, and now it's just computers. You, you, you rank a team, uh, you adjust them based upon the game that they played, games that they should have lost, but they won and vice versa. And, and then uh, the, the computer tells you what the spread should be. You see what everybody else puts up across all your other platforms. And then you, you, you put a little bit of feel into it. And you, and you base the number or, or the juice upon the players that you know you have. If you have a, uh, and you keep track of that. If you know that you have a really big player who's from Seattle, who's in town, then you, then you shade the Seahawks a little bit more. And the same goes for, for Buffalo, you know, and, and 
you can adjust your lines based upon the action that you assume you're going to take and, and just kind of go from there. So if you're, if somebody is, if everywhere in town is Seahawks minus three and you're the Seahawks minus three minus 20 cents, because you know, you have a big better who's going to bet the Seahawks and he lays that 20 cents, you got the best of it. And if you continue to take the best, whether you're a bookmaker or a better, if you continue to get the best number, you're going to end up on top. So you can, you can lose a, a bad beat, but more often than not, if you're getting the best number out there, you're in a good place. Well, let's apply that to what we've been uh, seeing over the last three or four days, uh, because uh, in, with, uh, with gambling and mobile gambling becoming ubiquitous, anybody can do it. Of course, people were betting on the presidential uh, results, and they still can Obviously, it hasn't been decided yet, not as of this recording. Um, but the numbers seemed so pulled out of thin air because you'd like to think that there's algorithms. Maybe they don't have the data in place or they're not plugged in. But for instance, uh, Biden was favored to win. And I don't have it all the way back to uh, the start, you know, but when the polls began to close. But as of 10, 10 o'clock Tuesday night, Trump was minus 370. He had become the favorite. 10 minutes later, he's minus 775. Now, the votes pretty much have been cast already. It's just a matter of counting them and having to break down the different uh, jurisdictions and all that stuff. Um, and who's, but it's amazing to me that within 12 hours, then Trump is plus 330. Uh, and then Biden's back down to minus 500. So I guess my question to you as somebody in the, the business, that kind of business, where do they get these numbers? Because there seemed to be, if, unless you were just so emotionally tied to this, if you could be detached from the presidential race, you had a chance to make a lot of money off of these oh, for sure. books that were, th that were throwing these wild numbers around based on tele what was being said on television. Yeah. Uh, so you, every number that you put out there, the, the point spread or a money line, which would be like the presidential elections, is tied to a percentage, a win percentage. You know, 70% equals minus $4, uh, you know, and go from there. And, and you base it upon bet the, you, you base it upon where it's at, like count wise, uh, where you think it's going to go, where states are, are polled to go or where they've gone traditionally what t states can flip, uh, what points or rather electoral votes you get for those states. And you can deduce what the percentage chance of that person winning is. And then you just correlate it to a money line. Last I checked, uh, I was looking on a, a, a British uh, exchange page where it's decimal. Uh, Biden was like 1.1, which is like minus 990 now if not more. And Kamala Harris is actually a smaller dog than Donald Trump is right now to be the next president. So you could actually bet Kamala Harris. <laughs> uh, it's, it's crazy how much it, it, it fluctuates. And, and that's kind of like in running when you're betting in running sports. Uh, you know, a team returns a kickoff for a touchdown and all of a sudden they're a six point favorite when they were a two point dog. Um, that's a huge swing of a, of, an, of a play that normally wouldn't happen. You know, one often you see kickoff returns for touchdowns or pick sixes when you're about to score. 
So you have to factor a lot of those things in when you're when you're creating lines, when you're betting lines is what but the happens. information on this, Joel, that is that I thought was so fascinating is all these things are happening at once. You're not watching, you don't watch the election sequentially. You're not watching a play and a right. play and a play. You're watching anchors focused on uh, Florida. Okay, so the first night of the race, they see Florida winning big. And so everybody's like, holy shit, uh, there's no, uh, Trump's going to win it all. But they're not paying attention to yet. They haven't started focusing on Pennsylvania or Georgia or Wisconsin yet. And so everybody's right. so focused on you, the television coverage, but really slant and really turn the, the betting upside down. If they just want to talk, you know, if you're watching a ch one channel, then the line, yeah. then the money's just going to go shoot and throw because no, you can't possibly watch all 50 races at the same time. Yeah. You, you're, you're looking at, you were looking at it's like betting Nevada on all, and Arizona. It's like betting on all 16 games on Sunday, all at once, all in running. Right. They're all factoring into. Yeah. It, it's tough. It's, it's really tough. You have to, you'd have to do that. You'd have to watch. You'd have to, if you were running in running election betting, you would have to have on Fox news, CNN, MSNBC, uh, and then just having a, a independent, if you would call it that, like a website, just keeping tallies of the votes, whether it's Google or whomever you think is not uh, one fav one political party or the other. And you'd data, have to just keep some track of it. Yeah. yeah, and you'd have to just keep track of all of that and and just fluctuate it based upon that. And it, I mean, you went to bed on Tuesday night thinking Trump's going to win this. There's no way Biden can get past like. 246 and then you wake up the next morning after all the ballots came in for biden um and then you think wow now he's like a seven dollar favorite when you went to bed he was a dollar fifty two dollar dog and you're just like what a big change you know and that's that's just how it goes that's why you won't see bets like that in a las vegas sports book uh at least not anytime soon because it's 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 just so volatile. Yeah. Well, maybe I saw so what I read in the Buffalo news. What's that Jonah? Well, according to what I read in the Buffalo news on Sunday, the ultimate bellwether is Cheektowaga. Whoever wins that region tends to win the presidency year every four years. <laughs> and the capital of Cheektowaga, as we all know, is Sloan. So right. That's I, that very distant. My parents, John and Sharon are deciding votes to see who's going to become president, you know? <laughs> yeah. All, <laughs> all those New York votes counted. Yeah. They, yeah it, New York is, it was possibly going to flip this year. I heard, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I thought of something the other day. I want to bring this up real quick. And I was texting my brother and sister during the game. Like I always do about how AJ Klein played like complete and utter dog shit and couldn't tackle anything, was behind every play, was getting run over, couldn't cover anybody. And I actually texted, A.J. Klein must have naked pictures of, of Coach McDermott or something. How does that guy play in a game? He's just in the wrong place every time, everything like that. The play before Cam Newton fumbled, it was third and two, I want to say. Uh, Cam Newton hands off to whatever running back. AJ Klein has him dead to rights in the backfield and just completely misses him on the tackle. Guy gets the first down on the, on the, on the sideline, first down. Next play or two, whatever, is when Cam Newton fumbles. 
if AJ Klein makes that tackle, the very good chance that the Patriots kick the field goal to tie the game. And who knows what happens in overtime. So by AJ Klein missing that tackle, it actually helped the Bills win because if he, if he makes that tackle, Cam Newton doesn't fumble on the next play. So his horrible play playing and missed tackles helped the Bills win. The he butterfly the effect. Ball. Matt and exactly. I looked it up after the game. It was they had uh, the Seahawks before that fumble had a 61% chance of winning the game based on down distance, how much time was left on the clock, all that stuff. So AJ Klein just doing his part. That's all Just part say, of Sean McDermott's what, what, plan. This is like, what, get him in what there. What can I do to contribute to a miss win? The miss tackles. the key tackles. <laughs> Don't make all the tackles. Just make the right tackles and miss the right exactly. tackles. Give him this first yeah, down. Complimentary football. Time off the clock. <laughs> exactly. Great play. Great well, I'm going to put that in the column. If A.J. Klein does anything on Sunday, I'm going to make that point. Because I haven't seen that anywhere else. But you're right. A.J. Klein won the Bills a game. He's earned his check. Exactly. He did more in yeah. that game than Tremaine Edmonds did. <laughs> well, Tremaine Edmonds got injured. That was probably his best move of the game. He's, uh, you can tell he's not 100% uh, Edmonds. He's not even close to 100%. He's, he's slow getting to plays. He's missing tackles. He's barely making tackles. He's, he's definitely not at 100%. Or else he's just gotten bad, one or the other. So let's recap, because I think I may have forgotten one of your bets. But you'd say take the over. We're going to go over 55. What do you – you want yep. Buffalo in the points, or are you going to give the – you take I'm taking the points. I'm, okay. I'm taking the points with Buffalo plus three. Um, this is, goes back to kind of that feel that I had on Tennessee and on the Jets game. My heart told me to take the Bills, but the numbers told me to take the other side. At first, I thought, oh, Seattle, they're just going to score at will on Buffalo's lackluster defense. But I'm, the numbers are telling me take the Bills plus the three. Okay. Any bonus picks this week? Anything else on the board that you like? I, I, I kind of like Minnesota minus uh, four. I kind of like Kansas City minus 10. But I haven't really hammered home anything that I really like yet. But those well, are the decide, two that stood uh, out to me. If you want, Yeah, if you want to uh, get on the record with one of those, you just let me know. Will do. I'll let you know. Right. Next year. Joel Staniszewski on the line from Vegas. The pride of Sloan was unable to vote. Was unable, unable to hold down. Oh, I, the, I voted. I voted, in, I voted in New York and in, and in Nevada. You could do that, right? Yes, you can. Twi- I voted here <laughs> twice. So that's Both three votes from Joel Staniszewski. Thanks, Joel. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.